Chapter 11 of Masters of Space. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by R.J. Davis. Masters of Space by Edward Elmer Smith, a.k.a. E.E. Doc Smith, and Edward Everett Evans. Translated by Robert Ticonetti, Stephen Blundell, and the online distributed proofreading team. Chapter 11 The Strat's fuel supply line had been cut long since. Many Strat cargo carriers had been destroyed. The enemy would, of course, have a very heavy reserve of fuel on hand. But there was no way of knowing how large it was, how many warships it could supply, or how long it would last. Two facts were, however, unquestionable. First, the Strats were building a fleet that in their minds would be invincible. Second, they would attack Ardain as soon as that fleet could be made ready. The unanswerable question was, how long would that take? So we want to get every ship we have. How many? Five thousand? Ten, fifteen. We want them converted to maximum possible power as soon as we possibly can, Sawtell said. And I want to get out there with my boys to handle things. You aren't going to. Neither you nor your boys are expendable, particularly you. Jaw hard set, Hilton studied the situation for minutes. No. What we'll do is take your omen, Keddy. We'll reset the guide to drive into him everything you and the military masters ever knew about arms, armament, strategy, tactics, and so on. And we'll add everything I know of coordination, synthesis, and perception. That ought to make him at least a junior-grade military genius. You can play that in spades. I wish you could do it to me. I can. If you'll take the full omen transformation, nothing else can stand the punishment. I know. No, I don't want to be a genius that badly. Check. And we'll take the resultant caddy and make nine duplicates of him. Each one will learn from and profit by the mistakes made by preceding numbers and will assume command the instant his preceding number is killed. Oh, you expect, then? Expect? No, I know it damn well, and so do you. That's why we Ardens will all stay aground. Why the Keddie's first job will be to make the heavy stuff in and around Ardane as heavy as it can be made. Why it'll all be on 24-hour alert. Then they can put as many thousands of omens as you please to work at modernizing all the omen ships you want and doing anything else you say. Check. Sawtell thought for a couple of minutes. A few details is all, but that can be ironed out as we go along. Both men worked them almost unremittingly for six solid days at the end of which time both drew tremendous sighs of relief. They had done everything possible for them to do, 
The defense of Ardvor was now rolling at fullest speed towards its gigantic objective. Then captain and director, in two Omen ships with fifty men and a thousand Omens, leaped the world-girdling ocean to the mining operation of the Strats. There they found business strictly as usual. The strippers still stripped, the mining mechs still roared and snarled their inchwise ways along their geometrically perfect terraces. The little carriers still skittered busily between the various miners and the storage silos. The fact that there was enough concentrate on hand to last a world for a hundred years made no difference at all to these automatics. A crew of Erector Max was building new silos as fast as existing ones were being filled. Since the men now understood everything that was going on, it was a simple matter for them to stop the whole strat operation in its tracks. Then every man and every omen leaped to his assigned job. Three days later, all the mechs went back to work. Now, however, they were working for the Ardens. The miners, instead of concentrate, now emitted vastly larger streams of Navy-standard pelleted uranexite. The carriers, instead of one-gallon cans, carried five-ton drums. The silos were immensely larger, thirty feet in diameter, and towered two hundred feet into the air. The silos were not, however, being used as yet. One of the two Omen ships had been converted into a fuel tanker, and its yawning holes were being filled first. The Orion went back to Ardane, and an eight-day wait began. For the first time in over seven months, Hilton found time actually to loaf, and he and Temple, lolling on the beach or hiking in the mountains, enjoyed themselves and each other to the full. All too soon, however, the heavily laden tanker appeared in the sky over Ardane. The Orion joined it, and the two ships slipped into subspace for Earth. Three days out, Hilton used his sense of perception to release the thought control blocks that had been holding all the controls of the Perseus in neutral. He informed her officers, by releasing a public address tape, that they were now free to return to Terra. Three days later, one day short of Saul, Sawtell got five Jet Admiral Gordon's office on the subspace radio. An officious underling tried to block him, of course. Shut up, Perkins, and listen, Sawtell said brusquely. Tell Gordon I'm bringing in 120,245 metric tons of pelleted uranexite. And if he isn't on his beam in 60 seconds, he'll never get a gram of it. The Admiral, outraged, almost to the point of a ploxy, came in. Sawtell, report yourself for court-martial at... Keep still, Gordon, the captain snapped. In sheer astonishment, old five jets obeyed. I am no longer Terran Navy, no longer subject to your orders. As a matter of cold fact, I am no longer human for reasons which I will explain later to the full advisory board. Some of the personnel of Project Theta Orionis underwent transformation 
into a form of life able to live in an environment of radioactivity so intense as to kill any human being in ten seconds. Under certain conditions, we will supply, free of charge, FOB, Terra, or Luna, all the uranexite the solar system can use. The conditions are these. And he gave them. Do you accept these conditions or not? I... I would vote to accept them, Captain. But that weight... 120,000 metric tons? Incredible! Are you sure of that figure? Definitely. And that is minimum. The error is plus, not minus. This crippling power shortage would really be over? For the first time since Sawtell had known him, Gordon showed that he was not quite solid Navy brass. Hey, it's over. Definitely. For good. I not only agree, I'd raise you a monument. While I can't speak for the board, I'm sure they'll agree. So am I. In any event, your cooperation is all that's required for this first load. The chips had vanished from Sawtell's shoulders. Where do you want it, Admiral? Arse Arsus or White Sands? White Sands, please. While there may be some delay in releasing it to industry... While they figure out how much they can tax it, Sawtell asked sardonically. Well, if they don't tax it, it'll be the first time in history that isn't. Have you any objection to releasing all this to the press? None at all. The harder they hit it, and the wider they spread it, the better. Will you have this beam switched to astrogation, please? Of course. And thanks, Captain. I'll see you at White Sands. Then, as the now positively glowing Gordon faded away, Sawtell turned to his own staff. Fenway, Snowden, take over. Better double-check microtiming with Astro. Put us into a 24-hour orbit over White Sands and hold us there. We won't go down. Let the load down on remote wherever they want it. The arrival of the Ardvarian super-dreadnought Orion and the UC-1, Uranexite carrier number one, was one of the most sensational events old Earth had ever known. Air and spacecraft went clear out to emergency volume 90 to meet them. By the time the UC-1 was coming in on its remote-controlled landing spiral, the press of small ships was so great that all the police forces available were in a lather trying to control it. This was exactly what Hilton had wanted. It made possible the completely unobserved launching of several dozen small craft from the Orion herself. One of these made a very high and very fast flight to Chicago. With all due formality and under the aegis of a perfectly authentic registry number, it landed on O'Hare Field. Eleven deeply tanned young men emerged from it and made their way to a taxi stand where each engaged a separate vehicle. Sam Bryant stepped into his cab gave the driver a number on Oakwood Avenue in Des Plaines, and settled back to scan. 
he was lucky. He would have gone anywhere she was, of course, but the way things were, he could give her a little warning to soften the shock. She had taken the baby out for an airing down River Road and was on her way back. By having the taxi kill ten minutes or so, he could arrive just after she did. Wherefore, he stopped the cab at a public communications booth and dialed his home. Mrs. Bryant is not at home, but she will return at 15.30, the instrument said crisply. Would you care to record a message for her? He punched the record button. This is Sam, Dolly Baby. I'm right behind you. Turn around, why don't you? And tell your ever-loving star-hopping husband hello. The taxi pulled up at the curb just as doors closed the front door, and Sam, after handing the driver a five-dollar bill, ran up the walk. He waited just outside the door, key in hand, while she lowered the stroller handle, took off her hat, and by long-established habit reached out to flip the communicator's switch. At the first word, however, she stiffened rigidly, froze solid. Smiling, he opened the door, walked in, and closed it behind him. Nothing short of a shotgun blast could have taken Doris Bryant's attention from that recorder then. That simply is not so, she told the instrument firmly, with both eyes resolutely shut. They made him stay on the Perseus. He won't be in for at least three days. This is some Cretan's idea of a joke. Not this time, Dolly, honey. It's really me. Her eyes popped open as she whirled. Sam, she shrieked and hurled herself at him with all the pent-up ardor and longing of 234 meticulously counted, husbandless, loveless days. After an unknown length of time, Sam tipped her face up by the chin, nodded at the stroller, and said, How about introducing me to the little stranger? What a mother I turned out to be. That was the first thing I was going to rave about. The very first thing I saw you. Samuel J. the Fourth, seventy-six days old today, and so on. Eventually, however, the proud young mother watched the slightly apprehensive young father carry their firstborn upstairs, where together they put him, still sound asleep, to bed in his crib. Then again they were in each other's arms. Some time later, she twisted around in the circle of his arm and tried to dig her fingers into the muscles of his back. She then attacked his biceps and, leaning backward, eyed him intently. You're you, I know, but you're different. No athlete or any laborer could ever possibly get the muscles you have all over. To say nothing of a space officer on duty... And I know it isn't any kind of a disease. You've been acting all the time as though I were fragile, made out of glass or something, as though you were afraid of breaking me in two. So what is it, sweetheart? I've been trying to figure out an easy way of telling you, but there isn't any. I am different. I'm a hundred times as strong as any man ever was. Look. 
He upended a chair, took one heavy hardwood leg between finger and thumb, and made what looked like a gentle effort to bend it. The leg broke with a pistol-shot report, and Doris leaped backward in surprise. So you're right. I am afraid not only of breaking you in two, but killing you. And if I break any of your ribs or arms or legs, I'll never forgive myself. So if I let myself go for a second, I don't think I will, but I might. Don't wait until you're really hurt to start screaming. Promise? I promise. Her eyes went wide. But tell me. He told her. She was in turn surprised, amazed, apprehensive, frightened, and finally eager. And she became more and more eager right up to the end. You mean that we, that I'll stay just as I am? For thousands of years? Just as you are, or different if you like. If you really mean any of this yelling you've been doing about being too big in the hips, I think you're exactly right myself. You can rebuild yourself any way you please, or change your shape every hour on the hour. But you haven't accepted my invitation yet. Don't be silly. She went into his arms again and nibbled on his left ear. I'd go anywhere with you, of course, any time. But this? But you're positively sure Sammy Small will be all right? Positively sure. Okay, I'll call Mother. Her face fell. I can't tell her that we'll never see them again and that we'll live. You don't have to. She and Pop, Fern and Sally, too, and their boyfriends are on the list. Not this time, but in a month or so, probably. Doris brightened like a sunburst. And your folks, too, of course, she asked. Yes, all the close ones. Marvelous. How soon are we leaving? At six o'clock next morning, 235 days after leaving Earth, Hilton and Sawtell set out to make the Arden's official call upon Terra's advisory board. Both were wearing prodigiously heavy lead armor, the inside of which was furiously radioactive. They did not need it, of course, but it would make all Ardens monstrous in Terran's eyes and would conceal the fact that any other Ardens were landing. Their gig was met at the spaceport, not by a limousine, but by a five-ton truck, into which they were loaded one at a time by a hydraulic lift. Cameras clicked, reporters scurried, and tri-dye scanners whirled. One of those scanners, both men knew, was reporting directly and only to the advisory board, which, of course, never took anything either for granted or at its face value. The first stop was at a truck scale, where each visitor was weighed. Hilton tipped the beam at 4,615 pounds. Sawtell, a smaller man, weighed in at 4,190. Thence to the radiation laboratory, where it was ascertained and reported that the armor did not leak, which was reasonable enough since each was lined with master's plastic. Then into lead-lined testing cells, 
where each opened his faceplate briefly to a sensing element, whereupon the indicating needles of two meters in the main laboratory went enthusiastically through the full range of red and held unwaveringly against their stops. Both Ardens felt the wave of shocked, astonished, almost unbelieving consternation that swept through the observing scientists and, in slightly lesser measure, because they knew less about radiation, through the advisory board itself in a big room halfway across town. And from the radiation laboratory they were taken, via truck and freight elevator, to the office of the commandant, where the board was setting. The story which had been sent in to the board the day before, on a scrambled beam, was one upon which the Ardens had labored for days. Many facts could be withheld. However, every man aboard the Perseus would agree on some things. Indeed, the Earth ship's communications officers had undoubtedly radioed in already about longevity and perfect health and omen service and many other matters. Hence, all such things would have to be admitted and countered. Thus the report, while it was airtight, perfectly logical, perfectly consistent, and apparently complete, did not please the board at all. It wasn't intended to. We cannot and do not approve of such unwarranted favoritism, the chairman of the board said. Longevity has always been man's prime goal. Every human being has the inalienable right to... Flapdoodle, Hilton snorted. This is not being broadcast and this room is proof. So please climb down off your soapbox. You don't need to talk like a politician here. Didn't you read paragraph 12A2, one of the many marked top secret? Of course, but we do not understand how purely mental qualities can possibly have any effect upon purely physical transformations. Thus, it does not seem reasonable that any except rigorously screened personnel would die in the process. That is, of course, unless you contemplate deliberate cold-blooded murder. That stopped Hilton in his tracks, for it was too close for comfort to the truth. But it did not hold the captain for an instant. He was used to death in many of its grisliest forms. There are a lot of things no Terran ever will understand, Sawtell replied instantly. Reasonable or not. That's exactly what will happen. And reasonable or not, it'll be suicide, not murder. There isn't a thing that either Hilton or I can do about it. Hilton broke the ensuing silence. You can say with equal truth that every human being has a right to run a four-minute mile or to compose a great sympathy. It isn't a matter of right at all, but of ability. In this case, the mental qualities are even more necessary than the physical. You as a board did a very fine job of selecting the Bucci personnel for Project Theta Orionis. Almost 80% of them proved able to withstand the ardent conversion. On the other hand, only a very small percentage of the Navy personnel did so. 
Your report said that the remaining personnel of the project were not informed as to the death aspect of the transformation, Admiral Gordon said. Why not? That should be self-explanatory, Hilton said flatly. They are still human and still terrors. We did not and will not encroach upon either the duties or the privileges of Terra's advisory board. What you tell all Terrans, and how much, and how, must be decided by yourselves. This also applies, of course, to the other top-secret paragraphs of the report, none of which are known to any Terran outside the board. But you haven't said anything about the method of selection, another advisor complained. Why, that will take all the psychologists of the world working full-time continuously. We said we would do the selecting. We meant just that, Hilton said coldly. No one except the very few selectees will know anything about it, even if it were an unmixed blessing, which it very definitely is not. Do you want all humanity thrown into such an uproar as that would cause? or the quite possible racial inferiority complex it might set up? To say nothing of the question of how much of Terra's best blood do you want to drain off, irreversibly and permanently? No, what we suggest is that you paint the picture so black, using Sawtell and me, and what all humanity has just seen as horrible examples, that nobody would take it as a gift. Make them shun it like the plague. Hell, I don't have to tell you what your propaganda machines can do. The chairman of the board again mounted his invisible rostrum. Do you mean to intimidate that we are to falsify the record? He declaimed. To try to make liars out of hundreds of eyewitnesses? You ask us to distort the truth, to connive at... We aren't asking you to do anything, Hilton snapped. We don't give a damn what you do. Just study that record with all that it implies. Read between the lines. As for those on the Perseus, no two of them will tell the same story, and not one of them has even the remotest idea of what the real story is. I personally not only did not want to become a monster, but would have given anything I had to stay human. My wife felt the same way. Neither of us would have converted if there'd been any other way in God's universe of getting the uranexite and doing some other things that simply must be done. What other things? Gordon demanded. You'll never know, Hilton answered quietly. Things no Terran ever will know. We hope. Things that would drive any Terran stark mad. Some of them are hinted at, as much as we dared, between the lines of the report. The report had not mentioned the Strats, nor were they to be mentioned now. If the Ardens could stop them, no Terran need ever know anything about them. If not, no Terran should know anything about them except what he would learn for himself just before the end. For Terra would never be able to do anything to defend herself against the stretch. Nothing whatever can drive me mad, 
Gordon declared. And I want to know all about it, right now. You can do one of two things, Gordon, Sawtell said in disgust. His sneer was plainly visible through the six-ply plastic-backed lead glass of his faceplate. Either shut up or accept my personal invitation to come to Ardbor and try to go through the ringer. That's an invitation to your own funeral. Five-Jet Admiral Gordon, torn inwardly to ribbons, made no reply. I repeat, Hilton went on, we are not asking you to do anything whatever. We are offering to give you, free of charge, but under certain conditions, all the power your humanity can possibly use. We set no limitation whatever as to quantity, and with no foreseeable limit as to time. The only point at issue is whether or not you accept the conditions. If you do not accept them, we'll leave now, and the offer will not be repeated. And you would, I presume, take the UC-1 back with you? Of course not, sir. Terra needs power too badly. You are perfectly welcome to that one load of uranexite, no matter what is decided here. That's one way of putting it, Gordon sneered. But the truth is that you know damn well I'll blow both your ships out of space if you so much as... Oh, chip-chop the jaw-flapping, Gordon, Hilton snapped. Then, as the Admiral began to bellow orders into his microphone, he went on. You want it the hard way, eh? Watch what happens, all of you. The UC-1 shot vertically into the air, through its shallow dense layer and into and through the stratosphere. Earth's fleet, already on full alert and poised to strike, rushed to the attack. But the carrier had reached the Orion, and both Ardvorian ships had been waiting motionless for a good half-minute before the Terran warships arrived and began to blast with everything they had. Flashlights and firecrackers, Sawtell said calmly. You aren't even warming up our screens. As soon as you quit making a damn fool of yourself by wasting energy that way, We'll set the UC-1 back down where she was and get on with our business here. You will order a ceasefire at once, Admiral, the chairman said, or the rest of us will, as of now, remove you from the board. Gordon gritted his teeth in rage, but gave the order. If he hasn't had enough yet to convince him, Hilton suggested, he might send up a drone. We don't want to kill anybody, you know. One with the heaviest screening he's got. Just to see what happens to it. He's had enough. The rest of us have had more than enough. That exhibition was not only uncalled for and disgusting, it was outrageous. The meeting settled down then from argument to constructive discussion. And many topics were gone over. Certain matters were, however, so self-evident that they were not even mentioned. Thus it was a self-evident fact that no Terran could ever visit Ardvor, for the instrument readings agreed with the report's statements as to the violence of the Ardvorian environment, and no Terran could possibly walk around in two tons of lead. Conversely, 
It was self-apparent to the Terrans that no Arden could ever visit Earth without being recognized instantly for what he was. Wearing such armor made its necessity starkly plain. No one from the Perseus could say that any Arden, after having lived on the furiously radiant surface of Ardvor, would not be so furiously radioactive as the laboratory's calibrated instruments had shown Hilton and Sawtell actually to be. Wherefore, the conference went on quietly and cooperatively to its planned end. One minute after the Terran battleship Perseus emerged into normal space, the Orion went into subspace for her long trip back to Ardvor. The last two days of that seven-day trip were the longest seeming that either Hilton or Sawtell had ever known. The subspace radio was on continuously, and Caddy One reported to Sawtell every five minutes. Even though Hilton knew that the Omen Commander-in-Chief was exactly as good at perceiving as he himself was, he found himself scanning the thoroughly screen-strapped world forty or fifty times an hour. However, in spite of worry and apprehension, time wore eventlessly on. The Orion emerged, went to Ardvor, and landed on Ardane Field. Hilton, after greeting properly and reporting to his wife, went to his office. There he found that Sandra had everything well in hand, except for a few tapes, that only he could handle. Sawtell and his officers went to the new command central, where everything was rolling smoothly and very much faster than Sawtell had dared hope. The Terran immigrants had to live in the Orion, of course, until conversion into Ardens. Almost equally, of course, since the bride infant was the only young baby in the lot, Doris and her Sammy Small were, by popular acclaim, and the first batch to be converted. For little Sammy had taken the entire feminine contingent by storm. No omen female had a chance to act as nurse as long as any of the girls were around, which was practically all the time, especially the platinum blonde twins. For several months now, Bernadine Braden and Haramon Felger. And you said they were so hard-boiled. Doris said accusingly to Sam, nodding at the twins. On hands and knees on the floor, head to head with Sammy Small between them. They were growling deep-throated at each other and nuzzling at the baby, who was having the time of his young life. You couldn't have been any wronger, my sweet, if you'd had the whole octagon helping you go astray. They're just as nice as they can be, both of them. Sam shrugged and grinned. His wife strode purposely across the room to the playful pair and lifted their pretended prey out from between them. Quit it, you two, she directed, swinging the baby up and depositing him astraddle her left hip. You're just simply sporting him rotten. You think so, Dolly? Uh-uh, far be it from such. Bernadine came lively to her feet. She glanced at her own taut, trim abdomen, upon which a micrometrically precise topographical mapping job might have revealed an otherwise imperceptible bulge. Just you wait until Junior arrives, 
and I'll show you how to really spoil a baby. Besides, what's the hurry? He needs his supper, vitamins and minerals and hard radiations and things, and then he's going to bed. I don't approve of this no-sleep business, so run along, both of you, until tomorrow. End of chapter 11